Welcome back to AD 79, Year of Vesuvius, episode 17, the month of May. May, and things are getting busy on the agricultural front. What has the Monologia Rustica have to say about May? 31 days, noons on the 7th, day, 14 and a half hours, night, 9 and a half hours, sun in Taurus, domain of Apollo. Fields are weeded, sheep are shorn, wool is washed, steers are tamed, fodder vetch is cut, fields are purified. Quite the agenda, and nothing more about vines, you will notice. Mayas has always had 31 days. Maya, meaning the Great One, is the Italic goddess of spring and plants, the daughter of Faunus, and wife of Vulcan. Mostly, she's into plants. Weeding first. But to me, it seems the mark of a very poor farmer to allow grass to grow among his crops, for it detracts greatly from the yield if weeding is neglected. Columella de Re Arustica, 2.11.6. An image springs to mind of slaves bent over hoes grubbing up unwanted vegetation, erba inutilis, and hauling it away for burning or compost. There was some of that, but they had chemical solutions as well. Deforestation could be helped along by soaking lupins in hemlock juice and pouring it on the roots. Did it work? Certainly that kind of mixture would kill a person, so obviously it must kill trees as well. Stands to reason. But life is short, and axes and strong backs are faster, so how often the poison chalice method was attempted is unrecorded. The jack of all gardening trades, chemically speaking, was amurka, the stuff left over when you finished crushing olives for their oil. One could steep seeds in it to prevent disease. It was also good for getting rid of alarming insects and critters, specifically ants and moles, but most of all, it was an anti-weed. Good, says Viro, for wherever noxious weeds grow in the fields. He wanted a mixture of amurka, straw, and dirt pasted on your threshing floor as well. Salt, of course, comes to mind, but in the literature, that's usually for punishing defeated enemies, and not a tool for the good steward. On the other hand, it might now be useful in some of the overgrown parts of uncovered ruins. I'm thinking Pompeii. So much for weeds. On to wool. Wool was as crucial to the Roman economy as cotton was to the American South. Flax, cotton, and silk, available in small quantity and at high prices, wasn't even in the running. Leather was a specialty item, work-related for the most part, Strengthening shields if hard, making shoes if soft. Wool has interesting properties. To the naked eye, it looks like hair. On a microscopic level, you see that it has scales, which interlock when bunches of them are spun or matted, and when thick enough, traps air pockets. Insulation against the cold, or, conversely, retentive of heat, even when you'd rather it did not. If you're a soldier marching in a hot climate, for example, doesn't breathe, that is to say. 
Colored wool came from different parts of the empire, black to white to red, soft or coarse, a good deal of variety in sheep wool, and it could be dyed. Forget those images of an all-white cloth population in ancient Rome with the occasional senator with his bit of purple trim. Cloth came in yellows, blues, reds, oranges, browns, even black. Raw wool is covered in dirt and animal fat. Think greasy hair, which must be cleaned, but gently enough that those scales not be damaged. It's not as easy as it sounds, a delicate sense of not too hard, not too soft, and specialists are called for. Once cleaned, it needs to be detangled, and any remaining impurities, burrs, twiglets, for example, removed, and this done by combing. Then spinning to turn the disparate strands into a single thread, woman's work, then weaving, also traditionally a woman's work, but done by A.D. 79 by men. Now the cloth is ready for the job of fulling. Not a word you hear every day. In English, it's the job of the fuller, also a surname. The man you call to beat cloth to cleanse or thicken it, bleach it, Urine makes your whites whiter. Soften it. Urine leaves fabric stiff, so it must be rubbed with fuller's earth. Trim excess. In short, to make it full. Still not done. The stuff had to be beaten tight, washed again, and put in hot water to shrink. The stage sadly abandoned our day. Then dried, then napped. That is to say, both sides of a cloth are teased up, and cut down to a uniform level, the lint left over then used for pillows. Then placed on wooden frame and sulfur burned underneath it if white. I could go on. Enough to say that the process ended with cloth squeezed in large presses, but only after having been sprinkled with warm water. A doing so makes the texture smooth on the skin. That's a lot of steps and a lot of specialized skills involved, some of them quite well paid, and you have to wonder how long it took for the entire process to become standardized. If you didn't want to do that, you could just make felt. Basically, wool scraps of low quality and animal hair pressed together with a binder. Fewer steps, fewer workers. A fresco shows us a pair of men stripped to the waist in front of a blazing furnace. The binder likes it warm pulling at the unfinished product. Strong arms and a tolerance for high temperatures required. The resulting cloth was useful when you need something against the rain, so hats, raincoats, tents, slippers. So much for felt. Back to Pompeii. Pompeii holds various buildings where specialists did their part in creating cloth, Dye houses, and even a spinning-slash-weaving operation, Casa de Minutius. The latter make for an interesting sociological situation. There are a few known shops employing spinners and weavers. Again, spinners all women, weavers men. But ill-regarded men looked down on for doing women's work, unlike stomping on woolen clothing and vats of urine. Disreputable men. The contempt pops up in a few literary sources. 
The largest enterprise in Pompeii was the Fullery of Stephanus, a large repurposed house outfitted for both cloth manufacturing and cleaning. The most notable, however, is the house and shop of Marcus Vesilius Veracundus, Vestiarius, dry goods merchant, for no greater reason than the surviving frescoes facing the street. Prominent is a portrait of Venus, patron of Pompeii, driving a chariot pulled by four elephants. It's a great picture, and who doesn't like elephants? It takes up the greater part of the upper wall beneath the balcony. Below it, the fresco gets down to mortal business without elephants. On one side, we see the Vestiarius of Aracundus himself holding up a cloth, in case you were unsure what was on offer inside. On the other side, we see a woman, presumably Mrs. Veracundius, next to a display table and a shelf full of folded cloth and shoes. She is holding out a pair for a prospective customer. She or the shoes hold his immediate attention. Between the flanking couple are workers, men making felt and combing wool. We assume the felt was made on site, shoes sold on site. An open question is, who actually made the shoes? Or were they slippers, intended more a defense against the cold rather than for walkabout? Did the house of Vercundius do a line in leather shoes? Maybe. They might have done. Despite the shop's main trade in utilitarian felt, a graffito at the entrance of the shop reads, Tunica lintea aurata, gold and linen tunic, which is pretty high-end, not the sort of thing that the bargain-bin shopper is in the market for. Preparing wool is one thing, selling clothes is another, keeping clothes clean is another still. The Romans had their ways, which involved going back to the fuller's shop. Much the same process for prepping the cloth was involved in cleaning it, once more into the vats of urine, once more men stomping as if crushing grapes, taking the part of the modern machine's agitator. Rinse with clean water, bring out fabric softener, fuller's earth, because urine makes fabric stiff, then hang it out to dry. Public conveniences were to be found near some shops. Again, one more reason for Vespasian to tax urine. Pliny assures us that camel urine was primo, though he does not mention any trade in the stuff. He also informs us that dried camel brain steeped in vinegar is a cure for epilepsy. If only Caesar and Britannicus had known. Probably more than you wanted to know about Roman laundry. So, what else was up in May? The sports were on offer, at least in Pompeii, at least by AD 79. What's the point of having your own amphitheater if you aren't going to use it? Well, sporting events can get you into trouble. Large crowds of competing loyalties roused to a fever pitch of emotion. Things can go awry. Pompeii found this out the hard way in AD 59. In AD 59, Livinaeus Regulus, a man who had been a senator, but who had been expelled from that august body for reasons we do not know, decided to make his mark in Pompeii. It's a pretty small pond. How hard could it be to become a big fish? Bread and circuses are universal come-ons for the mob. 
he chose to sponsor games in the amphitheater. Which would have been fine, except for some out-of-towners showing up. Pompey had their version of soccer hooligans, not averse to letting things get frisky. The visiting guests from Nuceria got into an argument with locals. The why is unclear, but we can speculate. Nuceria, not too far from Pompey, had been growing in population. Nero settled some of his veterans there, which may have put a strain on land allotments. You'll recall how boundaries were an issue as discussed in episode 12. Some Pompeians considered the area in question as their own. For whatever reasons, hooligans hooligan, friction led to shouting, led to stone throwing, led to drawn swords. Nothing good comes from drawn swords. When the bloodshed was over, the Pompeians could imagine that they were on top, but only for a short time. According to Tacitus, many of the Nucerians were carried to Rome having lost limbs, and many were bereaved of parents and children. The Senate was duly outraged, and games in Pompeii were banned for the next ten years. No word if any kind of award was given to the Nucerians for lost limbs or loved ones. The Vinaeus Regulus, already kicked out of the Senate, was now exiled from Italy. No word if he was ever allowed to come back. One would like to know more about him. The other guilty parties were members of certain collegia, civic and business organizations, in this case illegal because not approved in advance by emperor or senate. There is a fresco of the riot, now in the Naples Archaeological Museum, once in a small house officially designated as 1.2.23, unofficially as the House of Actius Anicetus. His ownership is debated. Anicetus was once a gladiator, which encourages those who think that this was his place. The fresco, a part of a larger piece that once had two gladiators on either side, shows a somewhat idealized bird's-eye view of the riot, stylized because there are very few actual people in the picture, too few to constitute anything close to a riot, and in no real proportion to the stadium itself. Still, undeniably, a violence is taking place, and there are corners of the picture where you would not want to be in real life. Which makes you wonder what inspired the homeowner to commission the work in the first place. All too easy to imagine him as a member of the troublemaking collegium, unabashed and unashamed of his part in the events of the day, which left so many unhappy victims. The sort of thing that would limit the number and kind of house guests who would feel welcome in his place. Was he even there at the time? What did his neighbors think of him? Was he one of the men exiled? And if so, when did he return? By AD 79, had the fellow mellowed, assuming the painting was done earlier rather than later? Who was the painter, and what were his opinions on the matter? Regulus or no Regulus, once the ban was over, the stadium was open for business. Actually, it was open earlier for certain kinds of performances. Once more, would-be politicians trolling for votes could throw free games to go along with the bread. Much joy in Pompeii when that happened, even if it was a year of civil war. The amphitheater was, however, old and primitive. Just up the road in Puteoli, 
The lover of games would soon have the option of sitting in that town's new and up-to-date amphitheater, third largest in the empire, a Class B take on the Colosseum at Rome. All of it paid for by domestic money, the bounty deriving from the locals' improved financial standing in the wake of favoring Vespasian during the Civil War of 69, and the economic advantages, chiefly via trade with the East, that came therefrom. No riots on record in that place. It's still there, by the way, in Pozzuoli, and in far better shape than Rome's. Worth a visit, if Roman amphitheaters are your thing. More on amphitheaters and gladiators and show people in general in future episodes. In the next episode, My Dinner with Julia Felix. As always, coins or bills in the donation tab are more than welcome. If you've only got cobwebs in your pockets, then up-thumbing the series to those you think might like it would also be welcome. And, as usual, thank you for listening.